Our text this morning is from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. You will find this passage on page 876 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner received in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Good morning. It's a joy and privilege of mine to be with you this morning to share God's word with you. Uh, will you join me in prayer? Father, thanks be to you indeed for your holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Thank you for the men of old that you moved along by your Holy Spirit's power to write these words that are not idle words to us. They are our life. And we pray that you would help us to correctly understand them. We pray that you would write them on our hearts. We pray that you would transform our lives by their power. Lord, we say with Paul, we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. We trust that that is true, Lord. And so as we read your word and study it together, we pray that your word would read us, and we pray that you would do your work of spiritual surgery upon our hearts. Pray that you would encourage us and challenge us. Speak now, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Years ago, I saw a movie poster, and I can't remember what movie it was. I think it might have been Gladiator. But the tagline on the movie poster said something like this, what we do in our lives echoes in eternity. What we do in our lives echoes in eternity. And I remember thinking at the time, that's an intriguing tagline. It makes me want to see this movie. And I remember when reading this passage, if a movie was ever made of this parable, 
that would be an appropriate tagline because it very closely fits the message of this parable that Jesus preaches. There is limited time to respond to God's grace. This life is all that we have in that regard. There are conflicting approaches to life that we have a limited time to choose between. And those two conflicting approaches to life end in very, very different destinations. And once the bridge is crossed, there is no coming back. These are sobering words and a sobering parable and a sobering theme that Jesus preaches to the Pharisees whom were told loved money. It wasn't that they were rich. It was that they loved money. They idolized money. They made money their be-all and end-all. And so Jesus tells them this parable. Three points I'd like to bring out this morning. First, appearances deceive. What we see in life is not always the true state of affairs. Second, death is the great reverser. The way things are is not the way things always will be. And thirdly, opportunity is limited. So first of all, appearances deceived. We have two men here and there could not be a more stark contrast between these two men. There's a rich man who is anonymous and we could give him a name, uh, Richie Rich or Daddy Warbucks or something like that. But I, I believe that Jesus wants us to think of him as anonymous. I believe he does not give this man a name as he does for the other man. So this is a rather anonymous rich man who seems quite blessed on the outside. In this day and age, in the first century, if you had a lot of wealth and prosperity and means, you were thought to be blessed by God. We remember back in the time of Job, he was the richest man of his time and was considered very blessed until he lost it all. And then everyone was wondering, even his closest friends, what did this man do to deserve all of these things happening to him? So this rich man seems quite blessed. Everything about him screams luxury and wealth and prosperity. He wears royal garb. He wears purple, which was usually reserved for kings and queens. He dresses like this and apparently has royal pretensions. He thinks of himself as a bit of a king. He lives this ostentatious lifestyle. He loves to flaunt his wealth for all who will see him. He wears linen undergarments, apparently imported from Egypt. Who does that? This man lives quite the life of luxury. But we see that he is also indifferent to the poor. He believes that he is somehow entitled to all these outward blessings. And he believes apparently that the man at his doorstep is not entitled even to a small portion of what he has. So there's a great contrast between this anonymous rich man, this rich man without a name, and this other man, this poor man, who seems by the standards of that day, and to some extent to the standards of our own day, he seems to be cursed by God. Nothing goes right for this man. 
He is covered in sores. Apparently he has some disease or perhaps they are bed sores because it seems that this man is crippled. He can't move around and ambulate on his own. So someone, it seems, has placed him here at the gate, the palatial gate of this rich man. And all he's hoping to do there, you might imagine where you put the trash cans out by the road in front of your home, there is where this man is placed outside the palatial gates of this man's mansion to collect just a few crumbs from the trash that is discarded from the rich man's house. He seems to be homeless. He doesn't seem to have anywhere else to go. He apparently is starving because he's lowered to the level of craving trash from someone else's refuse. He lives the life of a dog. Jesus puts this enticing little detail in there that even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, it's annoying to be licked repeatedly by a dog, but there's also something a little bit comforting and and even endearing about that, isn't there? You may think, I don't have any friends, but at least this little guy likes me. So there's something endearing about that. The dogs treat this man better than people do because we're told that no one gave him anything. People either regarded him with disdain or disgust or they ignored him altogether, but no one gave him anything. The focus, however, is on this rich man who had more than the means to do so who could have given him just the leftovers from his table and probably not missed those leftovers. But apparently he simply steps over this man every day on his way to work or wherever he went and ignores him. So just as the rich man seems blessed on the outside, this poor man seems cursed. Most people probably assume this man has done something to deserve this horrible, horrific lifestyle that he has. But what we don't see is that one apparently has faith and the other one does not. That's not something we can always tell simply by looking at two people or contrasting the lifestyles of two different people. But that is true because the Bible from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation preaches that we are saved not by our outward works, but by grace, by God's grace through faith and not of works, lest any man should boast. So apparently one of these men has saving faith and the other does not. We don't find that out until a little bit later. Lazarus is given a name in contrast to the rich man who again is anonymous. Lazarus's name means the Lord helps. The Lord helps. Again, the rich man is not named. In those days, you were given a name by your parents, not just because it sounded good or was a trendy name at the time, but as a mark of identity in the hopes that your life would embody the meaning of that name. So this name, Lazarus, the Lord helps, is what Lazarus apparently centers his identity around. Lazarus has nothing else going for him in his life. There's no one else he can depend on. Everyone else ignores him. No one gives him anything but God. God gives him grace in response to his faith and his trust. 
the Lord helps Lazarus, and that is the only thing Lazarus has in his lifetime to hold on to. So he embodies this name of his. He centers his identity around this name, the Lord helps. So appearances deceive what we notice on the outside about people's lifestyles. The contrast that we tend to make between and among people can be deceiving because we don't have all the information God does. Appearances deceive. Secondly, death is the great reverser. Death is the reverser. Death comes to all. How's that for an obvious statement? But it's true and we probably don't think about it often enough. But studies show that 10 out of 10 people die. (laughs) And I think if we think about that from time to time, it can be an antidote to a prideful lifestyle. I really do. That if we intentionally take a stroll to a graveyard once in a while, if we are reminded that our life is but a breath, it's but a vapor that is gone in a few moments, then it's an antidote to grumbling. And I am very guilty of grumbling. I've got it pretty well. I lived a blessed, blessed life. But I'm quick to grumble when things don't go my way. Thinking on the brevity and the universality of death, I believe is an antidote to that. It's an antidote to envy because the way we have it in this life and the way others have it is not always going to be the case. In fact, it's going to be that way for a very, very short time in light of eternity. So death comes to all. Death comes to both of these men in this parable. The poor man, Lazarus, we're told, is carried by angels to Abraham's side to the place of fellowship, to the place of eternal felicity, to the place of bliss, where he no longer has sores, no longer hungry, he's no longer destitute, he's no longer homeless, he's no longer disdained or despised by the world, he is now in a state of rest and beauty. Here's how the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. There's no soul sleep. There's no, there's no span of time between the time we breathe our last breath on earth and our first breath in heaven. It is instantaneous. They do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves until the resurrection. That says a lot in its summary of scriptural descriptions about death and what it means for the believer. But basically to be absent from the body for the believer is to be gloriously present with the Lord. To be with Jesus the moment we die is a beautiful thing to look forward to. I had the tremendous privilege of being at my mother's side in her last moments on earth and had the privilege of laying my hand on her shoulder and saying a prayer as she breathed her last. So when I said, amen, I looked up and my mother had left this world and she had been carried by the angels into the presence of Jesus. 
And I remember talking to dad a little bit later on that day who had a sense as I was praying, it wasn't a visual thing, but it was almost this tactile sense of the essence of who mom was, her soul leaving her body and somehow going upward. And it's that beautiful picture of God sending those ministering spirits, those angels to go and to bring her mom, my mom out of her life and to take her into eternal rest where she was no longer sick, no longer suffering, no longer in pain. I can't tell you how comforting this and other passages were to me and my family during our time of grief. To know that mom breathed her last on earth and was carried by the angels to not only Abraham's side with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but to Jesus's presence and was loved eternally by him. What a glorious comfort that is. We're told that the rich man also died. He gets a proper burial, unlike the poor man. But that doesn't help him very much because he goes straight to Hades. Now that word Hades uh, in scripture has a wide meaning. It usually means the place of the dead, indistinguished. But in the New Testament, it is never used as a place where believers go. It's always used as a place of torment where unbelievers, where those who have rejected God's grace have their destination. And so we're being told about this place of incredible torment and anguish, and not just physical anguish, but emotional and spiritual anguish, a place of regret, a place of remembering in the worst sense of missed opportunities on earth that cannot be re reclaimed. So the rich man dies and goes to hell. And quite ironically, and it's a dark irony, he becomes the beggar. He is the one who is now asking that his own suffering be relieved. One of the worst things that I understand about hell from scripture is that there we have a memory that will never go away of things that are lost that we will never have back. And that is quite poignant in this parable. Lazarus is in heaven, the presence of Abraham. It implies that we will recognize other departed saints in heaven. There are other scriptures that imply that we'll be there with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and we'll recline at table with them in the kingdom of heaven. It's not just that we go there to rest, we get, but we also go there to feast in a great banquet hosted by our Lord Jesus himself. It's a beautiful picture. And it is quite a reversal for Lazarus, who in this life had nothing, had no food, probably starved to death, and yet he is invited and dines at the side of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in this feast, this wonderful banquet in heaven in which he has more than what he needs. He calls out to Father Abraham and he's reminded by Abraham that he has received, he says, your good things. Your life was all about you. You spent your life curved in on yourself and bringing all things to you. Everything was about you. And he says, 
You got what you wanted. You received your good things in life. Lazarus, on the other hand, has received not his bad things because Lazarus did not deserve the tragedies and difficulties that came to him in this life. They were not his fault. They were not his responsibility. So the rich man is said to receive his good things in life, the things that he wanted. Lazarus received bad things, and now the tables return. Everything is reversed. What effect does this have on the rich man in hell? Well, it seems to change him in one regard and to not change him in another regard. For one thing, he still has this arrogance, this sense of superiority over Lazarus, who interestingly in this parable doesn't say a word. Lazarus is content with whatever lot is given him by God, doesn't utter a word, the entire parable. The rich man, even in hell, cannot stop talking. He has this sense of superiority and he asks Abraham to send Lazarus to come and ease his suffering, to dip his finger in water and cool his tongue for he is in agony. It's almost as if he still thinks of Lazarus as nothing more than his own personal errand boy who can be sent even from heaven at the side of Abraham to come and relieve his suffering. It is still all about him in hell. In another sense, the rich man has changed because for the first time he is concerned about someone else beside himself. He's concerned for his brother and he asks once again, begs in fact, again, he's the beggar now, begs for Abraham to send Lazarus again on this errand to go back to his father's house and to tell his five brothers and to warn them lest they come also to this terrible place of torment. So he's changed in a way, but in a way he hasn't changed. Notice that he regards Abraham as father and Abraham very tenderly regards him as son. So he's in the large family of faith. He's apparently part of the covenant community outwardly. He is a child of Abraham and Abraham has this tenderness toward him. But even that tenderness does not change this permanent state of affairs. We need to envision these two men communicating with one another across the Grand Canyon, this wide yawning gulf that cannot be traversed at all, almost shouting to each other back and forth. So despite Abraham's tenderness toward this man in hell. Maybe he even wants to help him, but he can't because these circumstances, this gulf is fixed. Not fixed in the sense that it was once broken and now it's repaired, but fixed as in it is set this way quite purposely by God himself and it cannot be changed. There is no going back and forth between heaven and hell. Again, there's a limited time to respond to God's grace, indicated by these conflicting approaches to life, illustrated in the rich man and the poor man that end in two very different, quite permanent destinations. 
So that leads us to our third and final point, that opportunity is limited. Opportunity is limited to this life. Once this life is over, once we breathe our last, that is it. There's no going back. There's no reversing the circumstances. It is quite permanently fixed. So there's no crossover allowed here. Look at Abraham's response as the rich man requests, again, begs that Abraham send Lazarus to his father's house to warn his brothers. What does Abraham say? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. What the rich man is begging for is for a visible sign and wonder, for a miracle to occur, because that will convince his brothers. The rich man said, I had Moses and the prophets and they didn't convince me. But if you send him back, that will be undeniable. A resurrection will get their attention. It will shock them into reality. It will persuade them to come to you in faith and embrace your grace and, and receive your life for them. But look at what Abraham says. All they need to do is hear the word of God. And look at what's implied here. If they have Moses and the prophets, that is enough. They just need to hear them. The Holy Spirit needs to penetrate their hearts with the truth of his word, the truth of God's promise to those who come to him in faith and needs to persuade them. And that and that alone is what does it. If we only had the Old Testament, that is enough to convince us by the power of the Holy Spirit of what Christ has done for us. Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, preached the greatest sermon that was ever preached. His text was the Old Testament. And he spent that time walking along the road to Emmaus with those two travelers, telling them from the law and the prophets all the things concerning whom? Himself. If we only had the Old Testament, that is enough. How much more responsible are we who have the Old Testament that we can read in light of the New, the New Testament that we can read in light of the Old? We have all 66 books, the, count, the full counsel of God. How much more responsible are we to respond appropriately? So Abraham says, they have, your brothers have the law and the prophets. They have enough to convince them, but they must believe it. They must rest upon the promise of God. They must receive it personally. They can't just know these things intellectually. They have to receive them for themselves. And it gets to the heart again of what their problem is. Not that they were rich. Abraham was rich, wasn't he? Joseph of Arimathea was rich. Job was rich. It's not being rich or being poor that makes the difference here. It is the love of money, which is the root of all kinds of evil. Jesus preached this parable to the Pharisees who loved money, who idolized money. Money was their be all and end all. We had better hope that it's not a rich and poor thing because we as Americans, all of us are rich by the standards of the world. So being rich is not a sin. 
Loving money so that it controls our lives is a sin. And it's a sin that we need to repent of. Just as being poor is not a virtue. You can be poor but still be controlled by the love of money. You can be poor and still think about nothing else but what someone else has and want it for yourself. So it is not rich and poor, it is whether we have received God's grace about Christ through faith or we haven't. And we're told here that faith comes by what? It comes by hearing and hearing from the word of God. The word of God is sufficient to convince us and to convict us of our sin and to fortify us and to challenge us and to wound us at times, but also to pour in that wonderful balm of Gilead and and heal the wounds that it has inflicted on us. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It's able to pierce to the deepest part of who we are and perform that surgery and wound us so that it can heal us. The word of God is alive. And we have to not only read it, we must allow it by the Holy Spirit's help to read us, to diagnose our spiritual struggles and challenges and to heal them from within. So that is where churches need to put their focus. Not on bells and whistles, not on external clothing, not on smoke machines, not on lights and razzmatazz, not on softening hard doctrines to appear more tolerant by the world's standards, but on preaching and teaching boldly and plainly the whole counsel of God to the people of God and telling them what God says and saying it without apology, thus saith the Lord, that and that alone makes the difference. That quite literally makes the difference in human souls between heaven and hell. And that is the truth with churches and it's the truth with individuals too. You and I need the word of God more than anything else in life. So don't let distractions, don't let diversions, don't let entertainment rob you of diving deep into God's word and digging deep into it and letting it convict you and letting it wound you and letting it heal you and letting it equip you for every good work. That and that alone is what the disciple needs to grow in the Lord in love and obedience to him. And it's true on a family level. Parents, the best thing you can do for your children is not to make sure that they have every entertainment option available but to open the word of God with them and to be vulnerable with them about your struggles and your own sins and your own need for grace and to repeatedly and habitually read and study the scriptures with them. That and that alone will set them on the right course that they will need to be on for the rest of their lives. So we're we're told quite plainly here the power of God's word. It is irreplaceable. There's nothing like it. And there's no need that we have more than that. And it quite literally makes the difference between heaven and hell. What does Abraham say in response to this begging question on the part of 
the rich man. He says, if they do not, again, hear Moses and the prophets, not see signs and wonders, but hear the word of God. If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Well, that wasn't hypothetical, was it? And that wasn't theoretical. Someone did rise from the dead. First of all, Jesus resuscitates his best friend from the tomb who'd been dead three days, whose name quite interestingly was what? Lazarus. After three days, he comes out of the tomb. Now, how did the Pharisees and religious leaders respond? Oh, Jesus, we're sorry, we were wrong, you were right, we repent. Not at all. They tried to kill him. Think of the wickedness that's being displayed there. They wanted to kill not only Lazarus, but Jesus who had raised him from the dead. Now we all know Lazarus was resuscitated, but he eventually died again. Jesus, however, and we celebrated this last week, didn't we? Jesus went to the cross for our sins, died a horrendous criminal's death, and three days later, gloriously rose again from the dead. Not resuscitation, but glorious resurrection. He defeated death and hell and sin forever for the believer. So that if we place our trust in him and in him alone, we have eternal life. We have crossed over from death to life and what God has begun in us, he will see to completion. And he rises from the dead. The first resurrection, but not the last. We look forward to our own resurrection as his is the prototype for us. Did that convince people who were honest seekers? Well, I'm not sure there were too many honest, sincere seekers at the time, but it convinced only a small number of people. When the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven, he left behind something like 120 followers. Many saw him, his body, after it was raised from the dead, resurrected, and they still didn't believe. Many doubted, we're told. So not even resurrection from the dead convinces those whose heart is in rebellion against God's word. He has to do a miracle and transform that heart of stone until it's a new and living heart of flesh that can hear and receive the word of God and be transformed by it. So one of the great lessons of this text, of this parable, is that now is the time to repent. Now is the time to look at that person the Lord has laid on our doorstep. I love that we spent a few moments in the pastoral prayer, praying for that person in your life that needs help, that needs the Lord, that needs encouragement. Think about the person that the Lord has laid on your doorstep. It may not be a physical need, they may not be starving, but there is some need and perhaps the Lord intends for you to be part of meeting that need. So ask this question every once in a while. I need to ask it myself uh, every few days. Lord, who is it that you have laid at my doorstep that you intend for me to love Jesus by loving them? Remember what the Lord Jesus says. If you did it unto the least of these, then you did it unto me. If you did not do it, for the least of these, you did not do it for me. Who would you have me, Lord, love Jesus by loving them? 
So now is the time to hear God's word. Now is the time to repent. Now is the time to help those who are laid at our doorstep. Doing so or not doing so is not what sends us to heaven or to hell, but it is a great indicator of whether or not grace has taken a hold of our hearts. If we run out of gas by the side of the road, it's not because the gas gauge messed up and we can blame it on the gas gauge. The gas gauge is merely an indicator of whether there is gas in the tank, whether we've taken the opportunity to put gas in the tank. Well, our attitude towards the poor, towards that person in our life the Lord has laid at our doorstep is an indicator of whether grace has really gotten a hold of our hearts. If it has, we will love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind and strength, and we will look for ways to love our neighbor as ourself. So the time to do that, we're reminded, is now, and that opportunity is limited, and our life is but a breath. So seize those opportunities, friends. It starts with deep dives into God's word. Let him transform your attitudes and your thoughts and your priorities so that you are looking for reasons and ways to love others as you've been loved by him. I said a few moments ago that there is no one who has crossed over from heaven to hell or hell to heaven, but there actually is one that has done so. And we profess our belief in his doing so every week in the Apostles' Creed. Our Lord Jesus descended into hell. John Calvin says that when Jesus was hanging on the cross and when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, he was fulfilling scripture, but he was also experiencing something horrendous. He was experiencing the full wrath of his father poured out on him. He was drinking the full cup of God's wrath for your sin and for my sin, so that we could enjoy the full cup of God's blessing. And when he did that, according to Calvin, Jesus was for all intents and purposes in hell. So there is one who has crossed over from hell to heaven and he's done it for us so that we would not have to go there. So that we can one day, when we breathe our last, be at home in the presence of the Lord. This world is not our home, but we are heading towards home. And it's a door that our Lord Jesus has flung open by his life and death and resurrection. Praise be to God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so thankful that you have given us opportunities to respond to grace. You have taken us when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, and you have made us gloriously alive, and we had nothing to do with it, but we are so grateful that our hearts are no longer hard and cold and stony, but by your grace and your grace alone have been made alive so that we can respond to your grace. We responded to it the moment that we received Christ as our Savior. May we continue to respond to it 
so that you may conform us step by step from strength to strength into the image of Christ, our Savior and our Lord and our example. Father, burden our hearts for those who don't know you, those who are heading to eternal perdition without you. Remind us of the brevity of life and give us an urgency, a fresh, joyful urgency to share your truth and to embrace your truth anew and afresh every day. We ask your help and we ask for your presence now as we prepare our hearts for the table that the Lord has instituted with us. We are thankful for these elements that you have appointed from an earthly use to a wonderful and beautiful heavenly use. Would you fill our souls with spiritual bread? Would you strengthen us? Would you remind us that we one day feast in the great wedding supper of the Lamb? And we commit ourselves to you, Lord. Would you prepare our hearts to meet you at the table? We ask this in Christ's name for his sake. Amen.